Let's pray. God, we thank you that we have the incredible privilege of coming to your word. We pray that it would be fresh to our hearts, that our ears and our souls will be ready to listen. We want to draw closer to you and be uh, more aware of who you are, more conformed to your image through your word. So have your way with us tonight. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so tonight we find ourselves doing an overview of the book of Revelation, which means uh, that we have, at the end of tonight, assuming we get through tonight, uh, we've successfully overviewed the entire Bible. And so, uh, you know, hopefully that's been an encouragement, a help to just have kind of a, a grasp of, wow, the whole thing fits together, the whole thing matters, the whole thing has application for our lives, right? Uh, hopefully it's also been a just reminder for all of us that no matter how much you overview it, you can always go deeper. No matter how deep you go, you can always still go deeper. And so, um, you know, I've, I've loved this year getting the chance to see it in a big picture, in, a, in sort of a fast pace, and just all kinds of things that we can glean. I love seeing how it all ties together, but I also love getting to go in a little deeper and a little slower. And so that's why I've tried to encourage all of us throughout the whole year, what we're covering on Wednesday nights is a great addition to what needs to be happening in your life privately, right? What happens in your life publicly should be a reflection of what's happening privately. Your relationship with the Lord in public should mirror your relationship with the Lord in private. It shouldn't be a substitute. It shouldn't be a replacement. It shouldn't be compensating for a lack of something. And so when we come to the Word as a church, there's good reason for that, and there's biblical precedent for that, and that's important. It's important to come to the preaching of the Word of God, but it's just as important to come personally to the Word of God. Say, God, what are you saying to me tonight, today, this morning? When, I, when I'm opening up your Word, what do you want to say? And so, just sort of, you know, this is the last church service we're going to have this year, so I'll remind you, um, through the Bible in a year, things are on the back table, and I cannot think of one better resolution that you could make than to, uh, to commit to going through the Word of God in a year. And, and it will, you know, it's not every part of the Scripture is as exciting to read as every other part, and so there is a little bit of a discipline to it sometimes. But Paul told Timothy, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. And so sometimes you can look at this and say, oh my gosh, this is such a job. No, this is an opportunity that I have to exercise what God has called me to. This is an opportunity I have to grow in my relationship with the Lord. And if you want to know the Lord more, the best way to know someone is to interact with them and let them reveal themselves to you, right? One layer at a time, you get to know a person, not by, you know, taking a survey about them, not really by talking to their friends, not by, you know, reading their uh, police records or employment records or whatever else. Those can be helpful, and giving you maybe a more rounded picture. But if you want to know someone, you're going to have to interact with them and watch them reveal themselves to you in their conduct. And the Lord has revealed himself to us in his word. So if you want to know the Lord more, know his word more. Um, and I think we've said it already, but uh, just if you're looking for like what's Wednesday night's going to look like next year, we're going to basically slow down a little bit and go through the epistles to the church. There's about 113 chapters of those, and so two to three a week will get us through all the letters to the churches in one year. And uh, I'm incredibly excited, so if you want a little bit of 
advanced reading, I guess. Romans 1 and 2, next Wednesday night. We're going we're gonna to go through and see what Paul is saying to the Roman church and to us as a whole. But, so that's just kind of, if you're looking forward, where are we going? You know, what, where should we be looking to? We're looking to the Word. We're going to keep looking to the Word. That's really what this whole church's vision is, is helping people understand the relevance of the Word of God and the power of the Spirit of God in their lives. And so that's what we're doing. So tonight we are going to open up to the book of Revelation. Revelation is an interesting book because it's probably, um, you can't really ever say one book is the most misunderstood book of the Bible. But Revelation would definitely be in the running. Um, And it's misunderstood a lot of times because it's neglected a lot of times. And in the same way, you know, if you want to get to know someone, you need to know them, not just know about them. A lot of people read books about Revelation. They'll, you know, listen to people talk about Revelation, but they'll kind of steer around Revelation itself because Revelation can seem intimidating. Oh my gosh, you know, we're reading about the, the mark of the beast and this person called the Antichrist, and there's all kinds of judgments going on, and, and what does it mean, and can anybody really understand it? And, you know, it, it can feel, if you approach it uh, without a background in the Word and a background in understanding how the Word of God ties together, it can feel just really overwhelming. But God didn't write 65 books of the Bible and then put this on as a PS. He wrote the Bible. There's 66 books. They all go together. They all tie together. And so Revelation is a, just really, it's an encouraging book in its own right. And it can sound funny to say that, but I think as we go through tonight, we're going to see that. Um, But there are some things we just want to keep in mind sort of before we get into it, okay? And so a couple things. One, um, read the book yourself, right? Don't ever, don't listen to me do an overview and then say, okay, I got the book of Revelation. No, 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 no. Read the book yourself. Read the whole word and, and see the context. If you want to listen to it in a more sort of slow, step-by-step pace, do that. If you want to know, I would say, if you want to listen to a couple pastors go through it, um, there's this great pastor in Madison named Scott Murphy who went through it a few years ago. You can get those online. There's also uh, Damian Kyle, is a pastor in California. He pastors at a church called CC or Calvary Chapel Modesto. You can go to ccmodesto.com. He's probably the best Bible teacher on the face of the earth today. There's a pastor I love listening to named Jason Duff. Uh, like, get off your Duff. And um, he actually, I've never listened to him teach the Revelation. He's going with his whole church through the Bible, and he's going to be starting the book of Revelation uh, second week of next year. So he's basically getting ready to start it. I'm looking forward to hear him teach. He's one of my favorite Bible teachers. So I would really encourage you, if you want to dig deeper into Revelation, those are a couple guys who would be just a great resource. Um, but go to it yourself. Go to the Word. And as we go to Revelation, we're going to see a couple things in this book uh, that we, we want to just kind of set a game plan before we open it up. So why do we have the book of Revelation? Well, for one thing, it rounds out God's character for us. It's important for us to see God as he reveals himself. And if we're not careful, we can sometimes take a verse about God's character or a thought or a idea, an idea, and say, uh, this is what I want to focus on about who God is. God doesn't give us that opportunity, though. God is God. He reserves the right to tell us 
how we approach him, to tell us who he actually is. So if we're going to come to understand God, to want to know God, it's important that we say, who does God declare himself to be? And so Revelation is going to give us attributes of God's character that are going to give us a more well-rounded picture. Uh, As we're looking at it, we are looking at prophecy. We're looking at the word of God telling us, here's what's going to happen in the future. And so what we want to do, we always use scripture to interpret scripture. So we have passages of the Bible that were given as prophecy when they were first written, and they have now been fulfilled. And we can look at them and say, oh, this is how the Bible laid out the prophecy. This is how it was fulfilled. And we have Jesus' first coming, which we just celebrated with Christmas. There are hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament about his first coming. And we can look at them having been fulfilled and say the vast majority of these were fulfilled in a very literal way. And so we look to a book like Revelation that's full of prophecies about a second coming, and the, the most logical assumption is to say, okay, when possible, we're going to look at this as if it's literal prophecy. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of parts in the book of Revelation where John does distinctly go into metaphor, and, and there's, you know, a lot of times he gives us sort of the context. He'll, we'll see in chapter 12, there's a dragon, and then he says, the dragon, Satan. It's like, oh, the dragon is a, is, okay, got it, right? Um, but when possible, a lot of times when we want to make something a metaphor in Scripture, it's because we don't understand it or because it makes us uncomfortable. And so if you come to a part that reads as if it's given to us literally and you can't comprehend it, the better assumption is probably I bet God has something up his sleeve that I haven't figured out yet instead of I bet God obviously cannot rise above my intellect. Therefore, if I can only see it as a metaphor, it must be a metaphor. So when possible, we do want to look at it literally. We want to interpret it with scripture. Revelation is not a standalone book. It's part of the Bible. So we look at where else does the Bible talk about the events that are in here. So the book of Daniel is incredibly important. The book of Zechariah. Um, Again, if you're going to listen to Damien Kyle, Damien Kyle taught through Zechariah this summer. I think it was one of the best uh, teaching, set of teachings on the book of Zechariah that I've ever heard anybody do. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. There's things outlined throughout Scripture that help us understand parts of Revelation. That's why we read it in the context of the entire word. Um, and then just sort of a last thought before we really dive in. I say that. There's probably like three more thoughts coming. But last thought is, you know, we talked about rounding out God's character. And even as I say that, there's a sense of like, okay, maybe we're going to, we're going to talk about God's judgment and the wrath of God and, and God sending people to hell and all of that and, and in the name of rounding out God's character. Well, in the book of Revelation, the most common descriptor we have of Jesus Christ is a lamb. It's used 28 to 29 times, I guess, depending on how you want to count it. But he's going to describe himself to John in this book as the lamb. And bear that in mind, because we're going to see the judgment of God, right? The judgment of God is going to be real, it's going to be powerful, it's going to be tragic to those who refuse to be corrected by it, but God is never pulling out all the stops. The lamb is going to go to war against the dragon, and the dragon, with all of his, with all of his fury and all of his wrath, can't defeat a lamb, right? And so we look at Revelation, and, and you can get the sense like, oh my gosh, this is when the world falls apart. No. Revelation is when God very slowly applies justice mixed with mercy. 
We're going to see that all throughout the book of Revelation. The, the, the judgments that come upon the earth increase. They get bigger and bigger and more and more obvious, but the opportunities for salvation are there. And the Lord is giving people opportunities. It's never just, I have had it with these people, they're done. It is always, I'm going to peel back a layer and I'm going to give them an opportunity. The world says, we don't want God in our picture. So I will take out, I'll take myself out of part of that picture and they'll see what happens. And they have an opportunity to repent. I'll take myself out a little further. They have an opportunity to repent. And so it's never just, uh, you know, when we think of wrath in a human context, we think of like total loss of control. God never loses control. And he's never, uh, we're never unsure of who wins, right? It's never this moment. This is really not like uh, a thriller film. This isn't where we're wondering right up to the last second who's going to win. This is, no, no, the lamb is going to defeat the dragon because the lamb doesn't even have to exercise all, all of his power. He can, as a lamb, defeat the dragon. So, in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. So right out of the gate, we're given a promise in this book. If you read this book, God will bless you. That's a pretty powerful promise. God is encouraging us right at the gate, probably because he knew that generations of Christians wouldn't want to read the book because it would feel scary. He says, there's a blessing waiting for you if you read this book. John writes this book. He's, he's banished to an island in the Mediterranean. It's called the island of Patmos because he wouldn't stop preaching the gospel. Those who hated him persecuted him. They tried to kill him. Uh, they dipped him in boiling oil. That didn't work. So they said, we'll just shut him up on an island. Nobody could get to him there. Evidently, God still could. But so John is he's banished on this island. He says he's in the spirit on the Lord's day, and he has a vision of the Lord. And the Lord in chapter 1, verse 19 says, Therefore, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. And that's our outline for the book right there. The things that you've seen, John, is, he's given it to us in the first 18 verses. The things which are, he's going to write to us about the age of the church, and then the things which will be. And once he does that, he breaks down the book, basically splits pretty much in two. You've got chapters two and three, and you've got the rest of the book. And so chapters two and three, we're going to jump through fast, but he writes a letter to seven churches. These are seven churches that are literal historical churches, and he writes them. Uh, each one of them receives a letter from the Lord. And we are not, we don't have time to go through them all, which is a crime, but it is what it is. Um, but in each one, again, as you're going back to look at them on your own, what do we have? We have God describes himself to each one of these churches, and he gives a different description every time. So to the first one, he says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who hold, walks among the seven gold lampstands. To another one, he says, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. To another one, he says, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. He's revealing different parts of his character. And then he gives them a list of, hey, here's things that you're doing really well, keep going. And here's things that you're doing poorly that need to be corrected. And some churches, there's nothing negative to say. Some churches, there's nothing good to say. And then he ends with a promise for each one of them. And so these are seven historical churches. They're also very much um, seven states of, of our heart. And so as we're reading these, it's great to just pause and say, okay, Lord, where am I in this mix? 
And are there promises that you're offering that I need to take hold of? Are there descriptions of your character that I need to be aware of? Are there rebukes or exhortations that I need to be appreciative of or watchful for? So these are great to look at as a means of, okay, what is the Lord saying, not just to an individual church and a place in time, but these are very, have very real application for our hearts today. And so we get that. We get to chapter 4, verse 1. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of the trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one was sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So after these things, after what? after the era of the churches. Some people say that the seven churches are actually also symbolic of seven historical periods of the church. And there's a lot of great uh, reasons to say that as well. And basically, after the era of the church, the church is given by God for a specific time and specific function on earth. The church, in a, in a, it sounds kind of funny to say it, but the church doesn't last forever. Because when we get to heaven, we don't have pastors anymore, right? We do not need you really don't need podcasts of Bible teachers anymore. You're going to have Jesus Christ teaching you what the Bible says, right? Uh, like, it's not a conference where you get to pick which breakout session you're going to. It's Jesus Christ, and you're going to be fellowshipping with him in all his fullness and all of his glory. You really don't need a Bible teacher at that point. And so the church has a specific function. That's to spread the gospel uh, down here. Just like marriage is a gift from God down here. Marriage is not forever. It's not in heaven. Jesus says, we don't get married in heaven, uh, not, not in a human sense to each other. And so he says, after these things, and so he's, you know, Jesus said, write the things that you've seen, which is John's initial vision of, I saw the Lord talking to me, write the things that are, that's the church age, that's the age of the church. And then he says, write the things that will be. And so we made a transition right at chapter four to things that will be. And John says, I was in the spirit yeah, I heard a voice saying, come up here and I'll show you the things that will be. And I was in the spirit. And I believe, a lot of Bible teachers believe that this is a reference here to the rapture of the church. The church getting taken out at the end of the church age and brought up to heaven so that God can bring justice to the earth. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but a couple are that in this book, in the book of Revelation, the word church is not going to be mentioned again after chapter 4. Right until like halfway through the very last chapter when the Lord just says, hey, write these things down and send them to the churches. Other than that, this whole description of all the judgment that comes, the word church is not in it. This is not a judgment that comes on the church. Another reason is that the Lord chooses to reveal himself and identify himself as the groom of the church. He identifies the church as his bride. And so if God is the good bridegroom, good bridegrooms do not abuse their brides, right? We are not the battered bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, and he's a good groom. And so we, there's, I believe it's, uh, I think it's a bad representation of God's character to say that, oh, the church has to go through the great tribulation. No, the church doesn't have to go through the great tribulation. And yes, Christians do go through tribulation, absolutely, but there's a big difference between tribulation, hard times in life, and the great tribulation. 
There is a difference between this is hard because God is shaping me, he's guiding me, he's leading me, and this is hard because God is pouring out judgment on a world that deserves it and that hates him and that has despised him and that has fully turned their backs on him. There's a difference. And so the church is raptured up. And now in basically what we're going to see is the judgment of God in the great tribulation. So Revelation, kind of like a lot of the other books in the Bible, is not written from a Western perspective, right? Here in the West, we like bullet points, we like lists. If I say A, B, C, what's the next one that's coming? D, right? You don't have to do that in the East. In Eastern cultures, it's more like A, W, A, K, E, Why spelled awake. It's, it's, you know, there's kind of a circular thing. We're getting to a central point. And so sometimes it can be, it can feel really frustrating uh, if you're like nice linear trains of thought. But roughly, and again, based on other parts of scripture, we have a couple big bullet points of what happens in the Great Tribulation, okay? It's kind of like we have one, well, A, B, C. Within that, there's a little couple subsets of like A1, A2, A3, B1, B2, B3. So we're not, there are certain parts where we say A and then B and then C. There are certain parts where we say, I think it's A1, A2, A3. It might be A1, A3, A2. Not a big deal, okay? But roughly, as we're looking at the, the book of Revelation and the Great Tribulation, here's what you have. We're going to see uh, just a series of judgments given, and there will be spots where John pauses and kind of zooms out and, and elaborates, and then zooms in and elaborates on a specific part, okay? So what we're going to see, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. That seal is like a wax seal, not a seal line. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So basically here's what you've got. You've got the title deed to earth, in essence, okay? And when the Lord created the world, he created Adam and then Eve, he basically, he handed dominion of the earth to Adam. In essence, he handed him the deed to the planet and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Basically, this is yours. This is my gift to you. Adam was the only sinless man in, in, in human history. And he sinned and forfeited his right to that document. He forfeited his right to earth, to rule it. And so what happened? Satan gained possession of it. And so in order to gain that back, basically in order to buy it back from the bank, if you will, there's going to have to be someone who's holier and more sanctified than Adam himself. So, you know, they're, they're saying, hey, who's ready? Who's capable? And there's nobody. And then the lamb steps, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and the seven seals. So here's what you've got. Now, you're going to have Basically, Jesus Christ say, this title is mine. I have the right to it, and I'm going to reclaim it. And so where we're going to go now is there's basically a series of judgments. You've got seven seals on this book. He's going to peel them off one at a time. The seventh seal opens up a judgment of seven trumpets. Each trumpet that an angel blows brings a specific judgment. The seventh trumpet 
is going to bring out seven bowls of judgment. So it's seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls. That's the order. And in that, we're going to get some details. So um, we're going to kind of, we're going to start jumping kind of fast. But um, first seal, he says, I looked at chapter six. I'm going to be jumping. You can try and follow if you want, but it probably won't make a lot of sense. Chapter six, verse two, uh, after the seal's broken, John says, I looked and behold, a white horse, he who sat on it had a bow and a crown was given to him. And he went out conquering and to conquer. The first seal of judgment is there's a conqueror who's going to arise. Second seal, uh, another, a red horse went out and to him who sat on it was granted to take peace from the earth that men would slay one another. So there's a conqueror who comes and then there's a uh, dissension that comes from that. Third seal, there's a famine that comes. He says, I heard a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. A denarius is was equivalent to a day's wage. So for round numbers, let's say you make $50,000 a year, $200 a day is what you get. So $200 for a quart of wheat. So we're talking about a major worldwide famine, right? I have no idea what the price of wheat is right now, but it's less than that. Chapter four, uh, the fourth seal, um, he sees an angel of death. And he says, authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beast of the earth. So a fourth of humanity is going to get killed as the fourth judgment. The fifth seal, John sees uh, a wave of martyrs because there's going to be immense persecution. The sixth seal, there's all kinds of natural phenomenon um, that happen that are just tearing up the earth. And then there's a pause in chapter 7. And basically the Lord says, wait, we're going to seal up a remnant. And so he seals 144,000 evangelists from the nation of Israel. 12,000 from each of the tribes. And he says, basically, these are going to go out and, and they're going to share the gospel. And then verse nine, we, we want to look at this one. Chapter seven, verse nine. After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues standing before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands. And they cry out with a loud voice saying, salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Verse 13. Then one of the elders answered saying to me, these who are clothed in the white robes, who are they and where have they come from? And I, John said to him, my Lord, you know, I love that by the way. John is not in the mood to make up answers at this point. Um, and he said to me, these are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. So John sees a vision of a multitude from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues in the presence of God. And the angel says, do you know who these are? He says, no. And he says, these are the ones who've come out of the tribulation. There is going to be an immense revival that happens on this earth during the Great Tribulation. And we can read these numbers, oh, a fourth of the earth wiped out. You know, there's, there's, a, there's all kinds of references to death and destruction, and it can feel random in our minds because we see things from a very flat perspective. But to a God who's looking over the whole thing, who's executing perfect justice, and not just blanket destruction, this is perfect justice. Every heart is given the appropriate opportunity to know the Lord. And so, the great tribulation will be the justice and the judgment of God. But in the midst of that, there's going to be a multitude of people saved so vast that John says no one could count. 
John describes later an army of 200 million. So evidently he could count that high. So we're talking about a lot of people. John says, I can't even count it. And I can't even appraise it. I don't have an estimate for how many people this is. So this is not, you know, this is the judgment of God. Yes, it is. But it's the Lamb of God, right? And the Lamb delivers judgment, but he's still the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And so the invitation is still there. Chapter 8, the seventh seal's peeled back, and there's now the seven trumpets of judgment. And it goes, the first, verse 7, the first trumpet, there's hail and fire mixed with blood. The second trumpet, there's something like a great mountain burning with fire that's thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, we interpret scripture literally where possible. You could say, well, this is a metaphorical ball of fire. Could be an asteroid, right? I mean, it's not a stretch to say, hey, what, else, what if, you know, if God is, you know, the world has told God, we do not want you. And Colossians tells us that by God, all things are held together. And so really, in a lot of ways, I think Revelation is just God saying, okay, if you don't want me, I can ease back my protections on this. I can ease back how I've been protecting you like this. I can ease back how I've been protecting you like this. And you're going to see one step at a time what happens if God is not holding everything together. So there's another angel blows his trumpet and there's, says a star fell from heaven burning like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers and springs of the waters. A third of the waters became wormwood and men died from the waters. A third of all the fresh water in the world is going to be deadly poisonous. Another angel sounds, a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck, so a third of them will be darkened. There's going to be a major reduction in solar power from the sun. Um, and then and the angel, and then another angel says, watch out, there's three more trumpets coming. And so the fifth angel sounds and a demonic force comes out with power to torment humanity. Uh, the sixth angel sounds and there's a massive army release. There's four angels set loose uh, they're probably demonic angels that have been held back, and it says they go out and they're released to kill a third of mankind. So a fourth of mankind has already been killed after every Christian has been raptured, and now a remaining third is going to be wiped out. And again, remember, you know, we see things from a flat perspective, so we can see like, oh my gosh, this is just blanket carnage. No, this is God in complete and supreme control, right? This is God delivering justice to a world that has refused him. And it's not, you know, sometimes we think, well, why can't God just accept a little bit of unholiness? It's not that God can't accept it. It's that God is so holy that any unholiness is burned up in his presence. And so we, you know, we need the blood of Jesus not to make God be nice to us, but because if we're not covered by that holiness, we are consumed. There's nothing left, right? We have no holiness in and of ourselves. And so our complete lack of holiness cannot stand in the presence of God. Uh, chapters 10 and 11, we get a little more detail. The seventh trumpet blows, and then we're going to kind of zoom out just for a second and then zoom back in. And so chapter 12, verse 1, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. He's given us a metaphor of the nation of Israel. And we can say that because it says in verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Who's the one who's going to rule the nations with a rod of iron who was caught up to God and to his throne? That's Jesus Christ. 
And then he's talking about there's, there's a dragon who he tells us right here is Satan. And he says the dragon's thrown down the earth with basically all of his demonic forces. So right now, however it works, I don't know. But basically, like in the book of Job, Satan has the ability to sort of go back and forth between heaven and earth. And he can, have, he can somehow be in the presence of God. I'm not sure how that works, but he can, but he comes back to earth. He can kind of, he's, he's a locational creature, right? He is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. And so at this point, one of the judgments of God is God says Satan is banished from heaven. He is not allowed in here anymore. The only place he's allowed is earth. And so earth becomes Satan's dwelling place fully. And with that, his wrath is unleashed because now he knows he's running out of time. Chapter 13, we get the verse, the tap, the, sorry. Chapter 13, we get the chapter that kind of freaks people out. He says, then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having 10 horns and seven heads. And on his horns were 10 diadems. That's another word for like jewels. And on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard and his feet were like those of a bear and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon, Satan, gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? So again, we said John zooms in and out a little bit, okay? So I believe this is the first seal. This is the rise of the Antichrist. He says someone came up conquering into conquer. This man is going to rise to power. We're told he comes out of the sea here and in Daniel. He's, he's going to be based out of the Mediterranean area. And he's going to rise to power and basically establish peace over the entire world. Uh, he's going to establish a one world religion, which if you think about it, okay, if every Christian who actually believes in Jesus Christ is raptured out, uh, the only people left who are claiming to be, there's going to be a lot of people left who are claiming to be part of a church system who are going to have access to money and buildings and authority, but not necessarily a relationship with the Lord. Uh, in Ezekiel 38 and 39, most of the major beds of radical Islam will be wiped out. And so what will be left will be much more tame Islamic idealism. And if he can convince them, and the vast majority of Judaism today is very loose and liberal and has really, you know, if God exists, he's maybe out there. And so it would be, you know, by the time this happens, he's going to be able to say, hey, let's just come together in one religion, one world government. We're just going to consolidate this whole puppy and we're going to have perfect happiness. Okay. And you say that sounds crazy. Well, kind of. Right now in Dubai, there's a building being built, uh, a church of the Abrahamic faith that's going to house a church and a mosque and a synagogue all under one roof. Now, you could say, well, it's whatever it is, it's not a church. And I'd say, you're right. And any Orthodox Muslim would say, whatever it is, it's not a mosque. And I'd say, you're right. But there's a push underway globally right now. Let's just, hey, consolidate. And, you know, if we can kind of just leave off all these fringe people, boy, our life would be a lot simpler. We could all come together. So this beast is going to do that. He's known as the Antichrist. In verse 11, um, and well, back up. We also have a lot of information about this in Daniel. Daniel... 7, 9, 11, and 12, I think, all unpack this a lot. Uh, we're given a lot of other details. We're told in Daniel that the love of women will not be in him, which some people take to mean that just power will be his main drive. Some people take that to mean he'll be homosexual, which in this current world, you say, yeah, that's believable. Um, a world leader, sort of a religious world leader, happy to combine a little bit of 
you know, feel-good faith and uh, political liberalism and all these different things, and we can just all pull together here and be one family and unite, then it's totally foreseeable. And then verse, and he's going to survive. It says he's got a, a wound that was healed. So presumably he's going to survive some sort of major assassination attempt. And then verse 11, he says, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke as a dragon. He's going to look all nice like a lamb, but he's got the voice and the power of the devil. <laughs> he exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence. He makes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast. So basically you have people call him the beast, or the antichrist, and the prophet. This guy's going to be the spokesman, a lot of the driver behind it. It says, uh, he, sorry, one second, where's he going? He's going to, in verse 14, tell those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who had the wound of the sword and has come to life. And verse 15, it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so the image of the beast would speak and cause as many as do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So people have wondered what that means for years. In our current day and age, here's what I think it very well could mean. It means you're going to have a prophet who's a master of communications who happens to be the person who creates artificial intelligence. Create a create an image of the beast and give it life. You create an artificial intelligence system, you hook it up to the global network, and he says he can, he can make, give an order that anybody who doesn't worship the beast gets killed. And then we read about the mark of the beast, and there's never any reason to be like psyched out by the mark of the beast. And we know, you know the number is 666, and you can't buy and sell without it. Here's the deal. Nobody's going to, you know, just a quick little disclaimer, Nobody's ever going to accidentally take the mark of the beast, right? It's, it's just, it's impossible. You take the mark of the beast as an act of worship. You're going to be worshiping the beast. It's not passive, right? It's not the COVID vaccine, for goodness sakes. It's not a lot of things, right? And when people start throwing it around, it's, it, just be careful. It's irresponsible Christianity to say, oh, that's the mark of the beast. No, it's not. Mark of the beast is going to be a specific thing that sets a specific precedent in a person's life. It's not accidental. Um, probably it's a chip of some sort, right? We're looking at, we want to interpret this literally and feasibly and see it in our world. Probably talking about some sort of chip. I mean, we have chips everywhere right now. And there are people who, you know, the, the push is underway, the technology is underway to say, you know, if we could just implant it into your hand, you could swipe your hand at the checkout, piece of cake, go out the door, it just comes out of your bank account electronically. You don't have to worry about it. And so it's not, a, it's not some sort of hyper-mystic thing. It's just... There's going to be basically a one-world currency. You have to join the religion of the beast, the religion of the Antichrist, in order to, to be part of that. And then he goes on in chapter 14. He's going to kind of kick back now a little bit to a little more of a straight narrative. Um, we're giving just a, a little more detail about the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. He's going to see... Um, He's going to see just kind of the fate of what's going to happen to people who worship the beast. And then he sees a vision of an angel reaping, reaping the world. And it says that and the wine press is trodden outside the city in chapter 14, verse 20. And blood came out from the wine press up to the horse's bridles for a distance of 200 miles. And what he's doing here, this is a, this is a tie-in, okay? This is a tie-in to, um, to chapter 16. This is also a tie-in to the book of Zechariah. This is describing the battle of Armageddon. And so we'll kind of just, we'll jump there. Chapter 16, the seventh trumpet, you know, when the seventh trumpet happens, then the seven bowls come out. And 
so the, the bowls are poured out. And the sixth bowl comes out. The Euphrates River is dried up. And it's preparing the way for the armies of the east to come. And then verse 13 of chapter 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for their spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And verse 16, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Armageddon. All right, so here's what you've got. And again, we read Revelation through the lens of Scripture. Zechariah explains this in a lot more detail, but basically here's what happens. The Antichrist rises to power in the Mediterranean region, establishes world dominance. It's supposed to be peace and harmony, but there's dissensions that arise because whenever human beings are in control of the situation and the Lord isn't helping bring harmony, dissension arises. And so rebellions start to spring up. And specifically, in Zechariah, you're going to have the Mediterranean region and you're going to have, calls him the king of the south, you're going to have a rebellion in Africa. And the Antichrist is going to come down fight in Africa, and while he's down in Africa, the kings of the east are going to come to fight against the Antichrist. And they're going to, so the Antichrist is going to find out about it. He's going to come back up. They're all going to centrally come together in Israel. And they're going to all be ready to fight really the biggest battle in all of history. And they'll say, wait, I got a better idea. Let's pause. We'll fight the Lord real fast, get him knocked off, and then we'll go fight each other. And so you have... Um, 200 million soldiers coming together to fight the Lord. Biggest army ever put together in human history. And they're in the valley of Megiddo, or the valley of Megiddo, depending on how you want to say it. Um, It's 185 miles long. And you stick 200 million men in there. If they all die, they're going to fill that with blood. Zechariah tells us how they die. And basically their flesh rots on them. And it, and it sounds gross, but in Colossians, Paul tells us that by Christ, all things are held together. And so the Lamb of God comes down to deal with an army that has set, set themselves to wage war against him. Just like in Psalm 2, the, you know, the, the nations rage, they're plotting a vain thing, and the Lord in heaven laughs because he re- recognizes the foolishness of it. But this army comes together against the Lord. The Lord comes down. He's holding every atom of every human body together right now. And if he lets go, an army of 200 million is gone. Right? And that's, that's the battle of Armageddon. The seventh bowl of wrath is basically that. It's the armies of the world are wiped out. And then chapter 17 and 18, um, we get a description of the fall of Babylon. Now, Babylon... Could be a couple things. Could be either way. Some people think it's a literal, going to be a literal rebuilding of the city of Babylon. That's why a lot of prophecy people got really excited when Saddam Hussein started rebuilding Babylon. Um, it may very well be. It also is, tends to be descriptive through the scriptures of like the world system. The system that sets itself against God. The Tower of Babel was where men said, God told us to go out into all the world. We refuse. We will build our own tower to heaven. We will defy God. And so Babylon is the symbol, is the symbolic city throughout scriptures of when people come together to defy God. And so it could be a very much a literal reinterpretation. It could also be, or there's a reference in chapter 17 to it's set on seven hills. Well, historically, Rome is the city that's set on seven hills. And if the 
If you look at the prophecies in Daniel regarding the, the kingdoms of the world, and you look at the fact that the Antichrist is going to come out of the Mediterranean area, we're looking at a revived Roman Empire in some form or another, okay? And so Babylon, we could be talking about a literal city of Babylon and a literal city of Rome. We could be talking about a literal city of Rome and a figurative Babylon, just describing the, the system that is in place that set itself against God. But when the Lord comes down, okay, the, the battle of Armageddon is when the Lord comes down, judges the armies of the earth, and destroys the city. And John gets to watch a vision of this destruction, and we're given just basically two chapters of describing how wicked the city was and how just God was in destroying it, right? We cannot, again, it's the justice of God with the mercy of God, right? Just like we see all throughout the scriptures with the building of the ark, there was a hundred years of Noah preaching righteousness to a world that refused it. With Sodom and Gomorrah, there was time, there was God whittling down, say, I will save an entire city if there are 10 people in there who are willing to follow me. With the plagues in Egypt, we see over and over again, hey, you know, to the Egyptians, if you got people working outside, bring them inside. There's a hailstorm coming that will kill them, right? God's justice is always with God's mercy. So this is God's justice, and don't misunderstand that, but it's also God's mercy. Because when a world walks in wickedness, there are always victims. There are always tragedies that the world is happy to trample over. And so chapter 18, we see just a couple of those. Um, After these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Verse 1, sorry. Having great authority, the earth was illumined with his glory, and he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. An angel comes out of heaven and he's rejoicing that the city has been overthrown because this city is devoted to wickedness. Verse 11 He says, and merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every kind of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spice and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. That's the merchandise of the world. That's the currency the world works in. We have money and humans are currency, right? The sex trafficking industry and the human trafficking industry in our world are huge money and the Lord hates it. And there's a a judgment coming and there's rejoicing in heaven when those things die, right? And so we, you know, again, we're looking at the justice of God is the salvation of God. The deliverance of every person trapped in bondage is cause for rejoicing. The end of the oppression of those held in bondage is cause for rejoicing. And so that's what we've got. Chapter 19, um, verse 11. He's, he's backing up kind of the same deal. We're looking now, again, end of the battle of Armageddon. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
That should take you in your mind to John 1, where John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The one that John is describing in his gospel, the one who, who we get to watch say, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I'm the door, I'm the good shepherd, right? The one who works miracles, who died for our sins and rose again. That's the one we're talking about here. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the Lord comes down and judges the earth. We see at the end of verse chapter 19, the false prophet and the beast are seized. They're thrown into hell. Satan is bound for a thousand years. And we get to experience a thousand years of the earth and our relationship with the Lord as God intended it. A thousand years of God on the throne on earth. And it's going to be phenomenal. It's called the millennial kingdom. It's just a couple sentences here, but this is huge chunks of the book of Isaiah are devoted to this. Huge chunks of Jeremiah. This, this is big portion of the Old Testament. This is what we looked forward to for thousands and thousands of years. Is what we're still looking forward to right now. It's when Jesus comes back and sets things right. With that, though, there's going to be a millennium of people getting to just like in the Garden of Eden, fellowship with God, walking in a, in our case, it'll be a restored world, um, just all kinds of, of fruitfulness and the goodness of God is going to be poured out on, you know, billions of people. And at the end of a thousand, but it's still, you know, it's still this planet and it's still going to be, it's going to be fixed, but it's still going to be bearing up millennia of, of corruption. And so at the end of a thousand years, Satan's released for a brief instant. He goes out one last time gathers a whole new army because there were people who lived under the goodness of God and said, you know, that's just not really what I want. I, I would rather experience my own definition of holiness, my own expression of who I think God ought to be. And so Satan will gather an army. They'll come together again to try and defeat the Lord. And he says, the Lord will wipe them out. And then chapter 21, he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there's no longer any sea. So Evidently, beachfront property isn't a thing. Um, but but what, what we get, chapter 21 and chapter 22, we get all things made new, right? We get the, the fulfillment of every promise that we've been looking for in Scripture. Everything we've been holding on to, the fulfillment's coming. And so he's going to just restore it. It's going to be new. He says there is no temple because Jesus Christ is their temple. There's no sun because the glory of God is sufficient. So it's... He says there's a new heavens and a new earth. So, uh, you know, people sometimes get all, people get worked up over funny things sometimes. But like, you know, are there puppies in heaven? Is there ice cream in heaven? Some of those things. Bear in mind a couple of things. Um, we are talking about the holiness of Jesus Christ. Uh, we're also talking about the joy. And it can be hard to fathom. But like, you know, in our minds, in an earthly context, we separate majesty and happiness, Right? Like, if you're really majestic, you are not smiling. Uh, that's not how it works in God's kingdom. The full majesty of God is the full joy of the Holy Spirit. That's one thing. So there's going to be a lot of phenomenal joy. The other thing, when John sees in chapter 4, he says there's an emerald rainbow around the throne. There's a green rainbow. Now, scientifically, right now, that's impossible. Okay? The way... In our world right now, the way light works, the way atoms work, the way water works, the way everything we know about how 
any of those things work, uh, that's impossible. You can't have a green rainbow that goes in a circle around the throne. So we're talking about uh, a heaven and an earth that work on different levels of physical laws, all right? So don't overthink the ice cream, right? There's going to be plenty of things there. Um, but chapter 22, verse 16, I want to just read the last chunk of this chapter. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. So he's sort of wrapping up to John. He says, hey, this is what I want. I'm testifying to you about. I'm the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. The spirit of God, who's in our hearts right now, and the church of Jesus Christ say, come on, right? We are ready for a new heaven and a new earth. The, the, let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. We are ready and excited for the return of Jesus Christ. If you're not and you want to partake of it, come, right? It's free access right now to anybody and everybody. Verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the works, words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. That's a serious warning. The book starts with a huge blessing. It ends with a serious warning. Don't abuse this book. Right? And we're wrapping up the book of Revelation, but we're also wrapping up the scriptures here. And so do not, Proverbs says, don't add or take away to his words lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. You don't want God to look at you and say, you're a liar. So take the word of God seriously. Verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, yes, I'm coming quickly. And John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Verse 21, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. Right? So Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And we say, amen. Right? Come on. We are ready. And then I love... It's a great way to wrap up this book. It's a great way to wrap up the Bible. It's a great way to wrap up our year as a church. What's, what's the final benediction that John wanted to leave the church with? And what did God choose to put in the very end of the scriptures for us? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Right? That's what we want. That's what we want to see. We want to see the grace of God manifested in our lives and everybody else's life. And we want to see him come. So Lord... We do pray in, in agreement with John, in agreement with the Holy Spirit. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. We are, we are ready. We're ready to put off these sinful bodies and be clothed in your righteousness. We are ready. And we understand that, uh, like Peter said, your patience is salvation. We think about the, the people we're still waiting for. God, the, the hearts that are still, still hard, that you're still working on. We do pray for those. We pray for salvation to go forth. God, but we pray that you would come. We are ready for justice. We're ready to see the prisoners set free and the oppressed redeemed and the broken restored. So we thank you for your word, God. We pray that your grace would be with us, that it would abound in our hearts and in our lives. Send us out from here, God. We're looking at a new year. We pray that you would manifest your glory in a powerful way. Go before us. Have your way with us. We want to know you more. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Lamb and our King, that we pray. Amen.